0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion, We're Lisa O'Brien podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. Twenty-six years ago, Michael Moore, Steve Branch, and Christopher Byers disappeared while riding bicycles in their neighborhood in West Memphis, Arkansas. Their bodies were found in a ditch near their homes 26 years ago today. This is still a difficult time for the boys' families, and our thoughts are with them. Tonight, we'll conclude our four-part discussion of Commonwealth of Pennsylvania versus Wesley Cook, a.k.a. Mumia Abu-Jamal, beginning with a discussion of Abu-Jamal's federal habeas corpus claims and the reversal of his death sentence. Then we'll talk about the myths that Abu-Jamal's advocates claim prove his innocence, the documentaries about the case, and the criticism of those that don't present an innocence narrative. As always, we are a live show and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347 989 1171. Good evening, Michael.
2: Good evening, Lisa. We almost got caught by the uh, by the start of the uh, by the start of the show there talking about the horse race. I know. <laughs>
1: I know. That was uh that was a stressful weekend.
2: Yes, absolutely. I'm sure you know, um, another thing that I heard was the amount of money people lost based upon that one decision. Yeah. There's some unhappy jampers up there.
1: Yeah, that that's another yeah, I'm not into all the conspiracy theories. My position is that the um the disqualification was I don't believe it was fair because the movement was due to the horse not the jockey. Mhm. And while jockeys do have some responsibility, I don't think you can expect them to control a horse that is essentially spooking at something whether it is auditory or visual
2: right right
1: and so that on that basis i don't think it was a, a an a, equitable um i don't think it's a, a equitable uh decision so i was okay. trying to I didn't I didn't do my job this week. I didn't post. <laughs> I posted on Clear and Convincing, but not on my page and not on my true crime <laughs> page. And I was gonna try and do that in the background and I forgot that this the link <laughs> I forgot that the link well, plays that show.
0: That
1: <clears> throat> throat> so but yeah. So – and I, I don't think it's right now. There are people who think that Louis Saez deliberately did it uh, because the disqualification gives the appearance that there was something done by him.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so uh, I'm not real happy with it. But, oh, well, <laughs> that's life.
2: Now one thing I want to ask you uh, real quick. Uh, one thing that I did hear this morning on the radio, they said that besides ob- the obvious disqualification, apparently there's going to be no pen- additional penalty on the, uh, on the jockey or the uh, owner, correct?
1: I had not. I haven't heard that or seen that. I mean, I, they can fine, and I think that under the circumstances, you know, I think they recognized that it was horse movement and not jockey input. So they're not right. gonna find him. And he did he did correct the path almost immediately.
0: Well,
2: i have gotta at so, the biggest day in whatever sport is marred in controversy.
1: Correct. Correct. Kind of like a playoff you know, game.
2: I was about to say, or in New Orleans' case, the NFC Championship.
1: Yeah, and a spot in the Super Bowl. Right.
2: Um,
1: yeah, it was. Uh, it was. It was disappointing, and I, you know, like I said, I felt bad for Louis Saez and Jason Service, who I incorrectly identified on uh, social media. Uh, But they're now in the club of, of, you know, sports officials gone wrong. (laughs) People robbed by sports officials. The New Orleans Saints, maximum security.
0: Oh, trust me. And I I think one of the things,
1: he is a good-looking horse. He and War of Will
0: Mm
1: are I mean good looking good looking bay horses right so uh but and I like I'm I'm glad that nothing catastrophic occurred it could have been so bad because the the field because of the sloppy track was bunched up right um so, I mean, it could have been disastrous for horses and jockeys, and it wasn't. So, well, you know, a- an angel was was on a lot of people's shoulders. And War of Will came out. I mean, he I think he got almost the worst of it because he was so close. And Long Range Toddy, I think Long Range Toddy had to move sideways, not – had to kind of – not move laterally, but more or less turn to the side. Right. Um, And um, so, you know, but the results are what they are. Um, Brad and I kind of just debated this a little bit on Facebook Messenger over the weekend, and, you know, I I accept the decision, but I I don't agree with it.
2: Right, right. And that's about, you
1: know. No, <laughs> no, we will be bitter about that one until we make it to the Super Bowl again,
2: right? Right? Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about I noticed the past two weeks we haven't had any updates. Uh, is there any major updates or anything pending right now?
1: No, um, we're still waiting on a decision on the Motion for rehearing filed by uh, DiPolito.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, McDonald's brief, if he's going to appeal to the Supreme Court, uh, his writ will be due May 10th. And nothing's okay. happened there. I would expect if he's going to try to get an extension, he'll file something to that effect this week. Um, but nothing's happened yet. Uh as far as I know, nothing's happened on Stephen Avery. Uh the okay. motion to recuse and uh, additional claims are still before the judge in Sheboygan.
2: Sheboygan.
1: Sheboygan.
0: Sheboygan.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I think she's in Sheboygan um so we're we're waiting on for, she has to decide whether she's going to recuse first of uh-huh. all um and then she has to you know she has to decide whether she's going to grant a hearing or whether she's going to decide the claim- based on the record and the evidence presented in support of the claim. By Kathleen Zellner. So, uh, and then Syed's appellate uh, Supreme Court brief would not be due, or Supreme Court writ is not due until later in the summertime. And I have put an update show on the schedule in July. Mm -hmm. So, we'll do an update show in July. But if anything breaks in any of the cases, I will um, certainly include that in, you know, the opening of of future episodes.
2: Okay. Awesome. Just want to And then go into whatever. more
1: depth. <clears throat> right. Right it's been relatively quiet the last couple weeks. So okay. so we're gonna get back in the Finish up with Mumia Abu Jamal, Wesley Cook.
0: Sounds good. Let's do it. All
1: right. And I I have to remember to send you an updated schedule tomorrow. Okay. Um I I keep forgetting to send it to you. All right, so in part three we talked about Abu Jamal's direct appeal, which affirmed his conviction and sentence and then the various state post-conviction claims that uh, his advocates have filed. Uh, To date, he's been represented by um, Anthony Jackson, who he chose and he was appointed by the trial court. Uh, A lady by the name of Marilyn Gelb on appeal, on the direct appeal. And then in the First round of state post conviction, he was represented by uh, Leonard Wineglass and Dan Williams. Um, he had a falling out with Wineglass and Williams and fired them. And then an attorney by the name of Elliot Grossman came in, and uh, Mr. Grossman pursued the federal habeas claims uh-huh and then uh additional attorneys have come on the on the scene so we'll talk about them a little bit later <laughs> but
2: oh, okay. uh i uh, for a
1: well he he basically just can't accept um you know he comes from an attitude, a mindset of a corrupt police, corrupt system, and uh, basically, you know, he 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 didn't do anything wrong by killing a cop. Hmm.
2: I, I mean, and that
1: you know, that's kind that of the mindset of his, of a lot of his advocates. Is they don't believe right. that you know police officers are people, and so you're not guilty of capital murder if you kill one. You're not no, guilty of murder. One. So um, – and I mean he, he's raised – and it's funny for his advocates to say the system is so unfair. He's had multiple bites at the apple in state court. He raised a host of issues on state post-conviction in his first round and then went back, has gone back four more times, and was actually successful on his last uh, round. So, I mean, to say that he's, he's not getting due process is uh, a little out there to me because yeah. this demonstrates the record demonstrates he's getting more than due process.
2: I love I love people screaming they're not getting due process when they've got like 20 appeals pending.
1: Right, exactly. And he has I didn't I didn't look at any of these cases, but I mean, he's filed cases when Pennsylvania passed a law restricting his ability to speak at college commencement ceremonies and to be paid by NPR for a weekly one hour program or weekly half hour program or something along those lines. Um, you know, he has, he has sued NPR. He sued the prison. He sued the state. Uh, he sued for medical care. Um, and he's won some and lost some, uh, and I think the bottom line in the attitude of a lot of his advocates is if he's not successful, he's not got he hasn't gotten due process,
2: yeah, of course, well i mean it to it
1: be fair, couldn't have nice been a fair trial because he was convicted,
2: well, that's kind of like the whole you know everybody in prison today's innocent type of deal, you know that's kind of like well, yeah, of course you're gonna say that.
1: Right. So, um, interestingly enough, uh, some of the issues that we talked about last week on the state post-conviction were never raised in the federal habeas claim, even mm-hmm. though they knew about them, um, the, one, the allegation from Terry Moore Carter, as well as um, in 1999, Billy Cook and uh, Wesley Cook, Abu Jamal, signed affidavits purporting to tell the story of what really happened on December 9, 1981, uh, but those affidavits, declarations rather uh, – and there's a di- distinction between an affidavit and a declaration – um, but those declarations were never filed in support of the federal habeas claims, which right. is interesting because there are they are completely exculpatory mm. so, um, so in uh, in the federal district court, and just kind of a reminder, the federal district court, It is not a retrial of the case. The issue of guilt or innocence is not on the table. The role of the federal court in evaluating claims made by a state prisoner is whether the state court resolution of the issues raised was contrary to uh some federal law or supreme court precedent
0: mm-hmm. or was
1: an unreasonable application of the law to the facts okay so and more or less whether me. the facts whether the 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 facts found by the state courts are supported by the record made in the state court. Um, Evidentiary hearings, especially after EDPA, which was enacted by Bill Clinton's administration in 1996, limit the circumstances under which a federal court can hold a hearing on a state claim.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And one of the things is that in order to In order to get an evidentiary hearing on a state claim, you have to not only show what you would prove at the hearing, but also you have to show that the absence of that evidence in the state record is due to circumstances beyond the defendant's control. So if if state hearings are held in a state post-conviction claim and – for example, a prosecutor, you're making a Batson challenge. You're saying that a minority was being excluded by your, from your jury by peremptory challenges designed to exclude that minority. And you had state post-conviction hearings and didn't call the prosecutor. And there's no evidence in the record of Wadir. to either demonstrate racially biased use of peremptories or where the prosecutor has been given an opportunity to provide non-racial explanations for the use of the peremptory, then that's under your control, and therefore you're not going to get a federal evidentiary hearing on that issue.
2: Right. You obviously got because to chance
1: to defend You could have… Right, Because you could have developed that issue in state court. Whatever facts you needed, you could have done in state court. You had the right. opportunity. Um, so that – and also there isn't an entitlement to discovery. There are limited circumstances under which con- discovery can be conducted, but it's not uh, – it's, it's, it's going to be by court order and you have to make a case to your district judge as to why you need the discovery and what the discovery is going to show. Mm Mm-hmm. And so um, in one of the things is on several of the issues, uh, Abu Jamal requested discovery and uh, wanted evidentiary hearings, but in... All of those, he failed to meet the criteria to be permitted to conduct discovery or for the court to hold any evidentiary hearings. Okay. So the decision is based on the state court record and only on the state court record. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the first issues he raised was, once again, claims that uh, Robert Schaubert, Schaubert, Schaubert <laughs> and Cynthia White oh. uh, gave false testimony. They re-urged the allegations that both of them got deals of some sort from the prosecution and were either coerced to provide Testimony, or uh, the the defense was pre- prevented at trial from exposing those con- those biases. Right. Of the witnesses, um, he did not succeed on that claim with with Chobert. He never proved that Robert Chobert got any type of deal, um, hmm. and he. He tried to argue that he should have been allowed to um, bring up Chober's probationary status for the arson conviction, um, right. and he was prevented from doing so for, by the court. But the federal district court found that the grounds asserted by Anthony Jackson to bring in that testimony were not to demonstrate bias. Mm-hmm. Um basically Anthony Jackson was trying to label the crime a crimin falsi, which means a, a crime that impacts a person's credibility, like for forgery, fraud, theft, uh, where you're you know, you're don't have a propensity to tell the truth.
0: Right.
1: Or have a propensity to lie. Let's <laughs> put it that way. Um and he also uh, – on Cynthia White, he never proved that there was any type of deal. Uh, the claims about a, an, a little red car, watching her and protecting her while she plied her trade on the streets was not credible. And the the investigators certainly could have done a lot more to get to the bottom of the little red car. As an you know an, an experienced investigator, you would expect him to do more to get to the bottom of the little red car and why it right. was, was there when Cynthia White was. Um, so that that claim was found not to have any, uh, or rather the let's put it this way: the state court's resolution of those claims was not found to be unreasonable. … and misapplication of the law. And then right. he also raised several evidence suppression claims that the court uh, – that the state suppressed evidence of uh, attempts to coerce Veronica Jones into giving inculpatory testimony against Jamal, uh, suppressing the statements made by William Singletary, uh, the statements made by Chaubert. Desi Hightower regarding his polygraph, uh, trying to hide Deborah Kordansky and oh, uh, Arnold Howard. And again, and you know, this, this uh, federal court opinion is 118 pages in the PDF file from USDC and over 130 pages on FastCase. case. So I just want to say, Judge Yeone in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia did not just rubber stamp the state court findings. He goes into great detail discussing the state court findings and then analyzing the state court findings and uh, the law. So… he didn't find any support for the claims about Veronica Jones or William Sing- Singletary or Chaubert. Uh, Desi Hightower, I think he, he found, as the state court did, that the polygraph was not admissible. So the, whether Hightower failed a polygraph or passed a polygraph, that information was not material. And was not, could not have been suppressed uh, at any rate. And then Deborah Kordansky, of course, he found that the state didn't do anything to hide her from the defense. Anthony Jackson was able to contact her. And she did express at that time that testifying was not something she wanted to do for various reasons. But she was called at the... Uh, state PCRA hearings and she did testify and her testimony was not helpful right so because she did not look out until she heard the sirens and saw the lights which is after police had arrived at the scene Mm
0: mm-hmm
1: and she didn't have a good view of Locust Street from the location she was in, and therefore could not tell if the person she saw running – and she actually described them running toward the scene rather than away from the scene. But she couldn't describe whether they were male or female, and even whether they, it could have been a police officer. So she was useless. She, well, she didn't have anything helpful. you know. um, Right. And then they brought up Arnold Howard and alleged that the state suppressed the location of the either temporary license or license application. And it's kind of confusing because in the various articles in support of Abu Jamal from the various sources, uh, including so-called journalists in Philadelphia, um, this – thing is described as a temporary license, which is the little piece of – well, you're too young to remember this. Back Uh in the day, when you first got your license, you got a little piece of paper with your name and address and license number and restrictions, et cetera, date of birth, all that on it. And then in the mail, a couple of weeks later or a month later, you would get a laminated picture license. Okay. Um, I know nowadays it's like you go to the DMV, they take your picture, you wait 10 minutes, and you have your license. You're done. Uh, But back in the 1980s, that's not how it was. Um, And so it's described as a temporary license or a driver's license application. So it's unclear, and it's actually kind of unclear in the court record as to whether it was a license or an application because it's also referred to, I suspect, because in the brief, it's also referred to as either or. Um, but the again, the, the information about the license was not material, location of it, where it was whether it was in the car or in, on Faulkner's person, was not material given the fact that Arnold Howard was questioned on December 9th. He gave a statement that he lost the license or application in Billy Cook's car in November, and he provided a receipt that exculpated him or provided an alibi for him for the time of the murder proved he could not have been there, and so those claims were rejected or rather found that the state court resolution was uh, not unreasonable, and then um, he alleged that at the PCRA proceedings, uh, William Cook was intimidated from testifying by the prosecution, and there was an effort at retaliation against him because he apparently had warrants, and if he showed up in court, he was going to be arrested on those warrants. Um, Now, his failure to testify at trial, he told the attorney who represented him on the assault charge against Daniel Faulkner... (laughs) that it has been decided I'm not going to testify. Right. I infer that his brother decided he wasn't going to testify at the trial.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
1: Um, and I, I suspect that it was also decided that he wasn't going to testify at the PCRA, but they were going to use that to try and paint the Commonwealth and the court in a negative light, and with the passage of time, make it look like somebody uh, did something wrong, and that prevented his brother Wesley from presenting his full case to the courts. Um, mm-hmm. So that one, again, was was not an unreasonable – found wasn't an un- unreasonable uh, determination made by the state courts. Um, okay. Once again, they brought up the fabricated, the alleged fabricated confession, um, complaining about the testimony of Gary Bell, Gary Wachsell, and Pr- Priscilla Durham, uh, trying to prove that, you know, no statement was ever made. They made it up. Uh, there were some allegations that the Whole thing came about because uh, Mr. McGill was meeting with police and said, did anybody hear a confession? And that gave Bell and Walkshall the idea and Durham the idea to say, yeah, yeah, I did, I did. So Mm -hmm. uh, again, the the corroboration from Durham in the report that she provided – … as well as the explanations from Walkshall and Bell as to why they didn't mention the confession sooner uh, due to their state of emotional distress by the death of Daniel Faulkner uh, were all reasonable, and the determination by the PCRA and the state court was not unreasonable again. Right. So uh, then moving on, the uh, somewhat new claim – I don't think it was ever presented in state court in the way that it was presented in federal court. Um, They claim that there was suppression and destruction of physical evidence, including the caliber of the gunshot wound to Daniel Faulkner, failure to take gunshot residue testing. And um, the caliber of the gun, um, the – again, he didn't prove – they also, I think, complained that there was more of the bullet recovered from Daniel Faulkner, and the, the fragments were destroyed. And those additional fragments would have proved it was a forty four caliber bullet and not – a thirty-eight caliber bullet. Oh,
0: of course. Uh, It's always missing.
1: Yeah, there there was no support for any of that in the record. Um, As far as, you know, thinking they should have performed sniff tests, a sniff test is not a scientifically uh, repeatable test. It's something that can be done at the scene, to try and determine what happened, but in this case, they didn't need to do that because they had eyewitnesses at the scene who could tell officers what happened. Right. You know, it's not a situation where uh, Abu Jamal fled, dropped his gun in a trash can, and then collapsed in a doorway a block later. And so when cops find the gun in the trash can, they want to see if it's you know been there for a while or if it's been recently fired um they didn't need that it was right next to him on the ground at the scene near Daniel Faulkner's body, and uh there was no need to sniff it, yeah, and um there were also as far as the gunshot residue on the hands of both faulkner and and uh Wesley cook um, they were not. Conditions were not such that you could even expect to to determine anything by gunshot residue tests. Um, Abu Jamal was sitting on the ground. He was clutching his wound. He was handcuffed with his hands behind his back, which probably brought them into contact with his clothing. He was taken to the hospital. He was prepped for surgery and taken to surgery. So the opportunity to perform any gunshot residue testing – was likely not even available. And then with uh, with Daniel Faulkner, he was lying on his back on the ground. He was moved into a vehicle. He was too tall for the vehicle, so they moved him to a wagon and placed him on a seat. Um, so more likely than not, some of the gunshot residue from his jacket was dis- was transferred elsewhere but there was some gunshot residue testing and it was positive right. um, as I understand it the nitrates and nitrites are large particles
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they don't ad- adhere to skin or clothing and they're pretty easily wiped away but the primer is it's small particles, and it actually does embed in skin okay. and and fiber, so it remains. Um, so he found that that was not uh, again not an unreasonable determination that it wasn't supported. Abu Jamal's claims uh, weren't supported by the record. Um, (laughs) he complained about suppression of surveillance files kept by Philadelphia PD and the FBI. Um, But basically the uh, wine glass at the PCRA hearing did try to admit the COINTEL profiles. However, he did not have anybody prepared to testify and authenticate those files. Okay. And he never proved the existence of any files on from Philadelphia PD evidencing any surveillance or monitoring of Abu Jamal prior to Daniel Faulkner's murder. Um, I, again, I think this is just Abu Jamal's Ego, he wants to paint himself as a crusading reporter who, you know, was was constantly, constantly in conflict with the police department. Most of the officers who responded to Faulkner's murder scene had never heard of him. Right. Had no idea who he was. And he had been driving a cab for probably six months to a year because he had lost his radio jobs due to his lack of objectivity and his inability to see anything but move. Right. Um, And there were – nothing is detailed, but there were apparently some conflicts in the workplace. Oh, that Lord. led to his being fired, Why um and you know a couple of people it, did you watch barrel of a gun?
2: I have never got a chance. I cannot believe it. I completely blanked on doing that because Howard
1: oh you bad me. boy <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know there are a couple of people that talk about him, and uh you know he there he was there was no debate, and if you watch. You really should watch that documentary. I'm sorry, but you should. Um, you know, w- when you deal with the people involved with Move or advocating for Abu Jamal, it's not about debate and discussion. It's about hammering you over the head with their beliefs and their opinion, and in some cases, even shouting you down. Right. Rather than an exchange of ideas and opinions, that is reason, logical, rational debate. Right. Um, so uh, that also, as the Pennsylvania uh, courts found, those surveillance files were not material to the issue of innocence or guilt or his defense for the murder of Daniel Faulkner. That they had nothing to do with uh the murder of Daniel Faulkner. I mean, COINTELPRO had ended when J. Edgar Hoover died in seventy two or seventy
3: three
1: or shortly thereafter. Um so and you know, they surveilled him but they didn't they didn't try and frame him for crimes he didn't commit. They didn't arrest him. They didn't you know, do anything other than keep an eye on him and, and, you know, know what he was doing. Because they were were trying to take a bit of a proactive approach. If somebody committed a crime, they'd be right on top of them when they did. And they would have the evidence when they did. So, and then he raised several... um, Claims about ineffective assistance of trial counsel. Uh, once again, they found the federal court found that uh, some of the claims were a misstatement of the facts, such as that Jackson was uh, inexperienced, had never handled a capital murder case, and uh, Jackson's testimony that he was ineffective was was basically refuted by the trial court record.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And um, he also complained that the court created a conflict between Abu Jamal and counsel. That was when Abu Jamal wanted to represent himself, and the court kept him as backup counsel, even though he had no idea what backup counsel meant. Um, And basically, again, as with the state court, they found that any difficulties between Abu Jamal and and Jackson were the result of Abu Jamal's strategy, feeling, belief, actions, rather than uh, anything to do with the court or commonwealth. Right. And, you know, I think that some of the complaints Jackson raised were actually ones that Abu Jamal told him to raise. So he was doing what Abu Jamal wanted him to. I mean, toward the end of the trial, he got up and made a motion to dismiss the charges because the state didn't define murder to Abu Jamal's liking.
3: Oh, dear Lord.
1: Um, so, you know, that was just crazy, but he did it. Um, yeah. he didn't have the snowball's chance in hell, but he did it anyway. But he was
0: not
2: to play along.
1: Right, right. And I think, I think to a degree, even with some of the antics, I think Jackson was actually, um... I think he was going along with the strategy cuz he tried several times to get continuances.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, he
1: he tried to get a continuance so that new counsel could be appointed and he tried to get a continuance to uh call witnesses that they waited until the last minute to call. Right. Um and that was one of the ineffective assistance claims but uh the court again the state court found that Jamal controlled the trial strategy, so deciding who to call and when to call him was not left to Anthony Jackson. Jamal made that decision, and Jamal waited until the last minute to call Gary Walkshall. That's on him. That's not on Jackson,
0: Uh, and
1: he wouldn't tell Jackson who the witnesses were going to be at the time that they were supposed to designate witnesses as part of the trial procedure. But they got leeway in a civil case. If you don't file your witness and exhibit list when the court tells you it's due, when you go to trial, you don't put on any witnesses or or enter any exhibits. Oof.
2: So he really I got mean, more than a fair trial.
1: Right, and and there are you know in criminal cases and and defense attorneys take advantage of this but there are deadlines and there are 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 things that you need to do and defense attorneys push the envelope and you know like the morning of one hearing in Dalia De Pulido, the defense filed like 14 motions and one of them all heard at that hearing
2: holy crap
1: you know, and it's like I just got this this morning, right? So then the court had to, the court had to schedule another hearing to handle those motions. Um, but you know, again, he Abu Jamal was controlling it and controlling the strategy, so any problems were the result of his his strategy, not Anthony Jackson's ability as a lawyer right and then uh, of course they raised the denial by the court of meaningful access to experts and an investigator but the federal district court as with the state courts explained that jackson could have filed interim bills he could have gotten payment for experts on an interim basis Prior to trial, during trial, you know, rather than waiting till the end of the case, um, and that was explained to him multiple times that he didn't take advantage of it is not is not the court's fault
2: right.
1: And again, you know more or less, when you're an indigent defendant, The state is not going to give you a blank check to do with as you please.
2: And nor should it's not going to happen.
1: And no, no Supreme Court decision provides that the state is required to do it. But again, even when there are statutory limitations as far as the maximum amount that will be, you know, provided. If you have an uh-huh. expert or you need an expert, such as a forensic pathologist, and he wants a twenty five hundred dollar retainer and your budget is a thousand, you can go back and say, I need this expert pathologist. This is why I need him. This is what he's going to charge. I'm requesting that the court grant this funding and the courts will because under the Supreme Court precedent they they have to. Right. But, but that Supreme Court precedent precedent doesn't say you have to give an indigent defendant a blank check.
0: Right, absolutely. That would make
1: no sense. It's it's not as it's not as relevant now because there are a lot of pro bono experts out there who oppose the death penalty, and therefore will work for whatever they can make from the court, whenever they can make it from the court. Well, without funding,
2: a lot of out there, like uh, Jose Baez, for example, who just you know, hey, this can be my chance to. Become a superstar attorney and, you know. Yeah. And so that as well.
1: And there are networks of, you know, like I said, there are networks now of experts. And the, the world has changed so much. You can look on the Internet and find experts now, whereas before, you know, you basically, if they weren't local to you, you had to, say, contact a trial attorney in California and say, hey, I got a case. I need a forensic pathologist. Um, the you know the system down here in in Philadelphia is totally against my client. I want somebody outside the system, and they'll recommend somebody. But uh, right. again, you know the 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 state provisions for funding the federal court found that they were not a violation of any rights or, or precedent of the U.S. Supreme Court, and the state court's determination a uh, resolution of Abu Abu-Jamal claim, Jamal's claims in that area were not unreasonable.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then um, he kind of re-urged the restriction by the court of the admission of material favorable evidence as to Jones and Chalbert, but again the court, uh, as it as, it, as Veronica Jones and, and Robert Chalbert, the court found that with Veronica Jones, they never really proved any type of deal actually existed, uh-huh. and that the testimony being offered to from by Jones as to Cynthia White was not admissible because Jones was claiming hearsay… That officers told her they were going to give her the same deal they gave Cynthia White. Right. That's hearsay. She has no firsthand knowledge of any deal with Cynthia White. Okay. Um, and, you know, she never identified detectives, who talked to her, when they talked to her. Um, so. Again, her trial and PCRA testimony were found not to be material or favorable to Abu Jamal. And then on Robert Schalbert, they wanted to, again, claim that they should have been allowed to bring his probation up to demonstrate his bias. Schalbert uh, mm-hmm. was on probation, mm-hmm. uh, but they didn't prove that he was ever threatened with a violation or threatened that they would, you know, terminate his probation and send him to prison for 30 years. Uh, They also never really proved what the terms of his probation were.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Whether it was, you know, and the the details of the underlying crime are, are, I think, wildly exaggerated. But, um, again, you know, they didn't prove the existence of any deal. Um, Robert did at some point ask the prosecutor about getting his license back uh, in good standing because it was suspended due to DUIs. Uh, They also wanted to claim that he had the DUIs, and therefore he was drunk and couldn't have seen what he claimed he saw. But again, that that wasn't – Abu Jamal in state court did not meet the burden of proof. That he bore to prove those allegations, and therefore they weren't, they lacked merit. Right. Um, Abu Jamal complained that the court stripped him of his right to self representation on Voidir. Um, as with the statements made when the court made that decision during Voidir, the Right of self-representation and the conduct of Wadir are not synonymous. Um, There's nothing that says if you're representing yourself, then you absolutely have to question the veneer panel to pick your jury. Abu Jamal was able to pick his jury because he exercised multiple peremptory challenges against Caucasian people, or presumably Caucasian people, who were perfectly uh, good jurors. Um, So he was able to pick a jury. He just wasn't able to question them, and that was due to the pace of Wadir as well as the fact that some jurors were uncomfortable being questioned by a person on trial for murder, mm-hmm. um, and so that you know the basically Abu Jamal's opinion about being stripped of his right of self representation is not um, that's not what happened. He still was able to represent himself because he was still able to choose jurors. Strike jurors, challenge jurors for cause, um, and that's what the attorney does. So there are some judges that they prefer to conduct a voir dire because they, you know, they know the way to ask the questions to do it efficiently, and to uh, they all of course take questions from each party, but they do the questioning.
0: Hmm. Okay.
1: And then uh, there was also, of course, the complaints regarding removal, uh, Jamal's removal from the courtroom, but uh, as with the state PCRA finding, uh, he was removed, he was warned, he continued his behavior, he was removed as a result of that behavior, that was not a violation of any Supreme Court rule or law um, because courtrooms need to be able to function in an orderly fashion. Right. And you know that it was cause and effect. And the judge warned him as he was required to do if you don't stop I'm going to put you out. And at one point, he didn't care about being put out. because He said, you can put me out, put me out, me out. I don't care, um. which demonstrates that he had no desire to conform his conduct. And so, again, federal court did not grant relief uh, because the state court resolutions were not unreasonable. Then Jamal right. complained about being excluded from two in-camera conferences that were held during his trial. The first one was right. held on June 18th. It dealt with the state Supreme Court not allowing – the, not staying the trial or Judge Sabo's order regarding – Anthony Jackson's representation as counsel and removal of Abu Jamal as uh, pro se counsel, and the removal of juror Dolly who broke sequestration, and um, there was one other issue I can't remember what it is at the moment. Uh, and then the second conference was on June eight, June twenty eighth. Basically, Mm -hmm. there was a note or report from the medical examiner's office that stated that uh, that Daniel Faulkner was shot and implying that another officer shot Abu Jamal. Anthony Jackson wanted to admit that report as part of the defense. It was hearsay. Anthony Jackson wanted to interview the officer who gave the information to the medical examiner's office and the investigator from the medical examiner's office who generated the report. And for him to be able to admit that at trial, he would have had to have one or both of those gentlemen testify anyway
0: Mm -hmm. because
1: a report is hearsay, and it's not admissible on its own. Right. So, um, they, Jamal wanted the officers to be questioned in open court on the record with his move people in the gallery and Judge Sabo because the evidence Was be, it was being determined whether or not the evidence was even admissible. He wanted to do it in camera. And so Abu Jamal refused to go into chambers with Anthony Jackson who was there uh, uh-huh. and Mr. McGill and Judge Sabo and the witnesses where they were questioned by Mr. Jackson, cross-examined by Mr. McGill, and then um, Mr. Jackson was able to do follow up, and in essence, neither man had any firsthand knowledge about the facts of the case uh, right. the The content of the report was based on hearsay to the police sergeant, which he then transmitted to the medical examiner's office.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: so in essence the report was double hearsay mm. somebody told the sergeant the sergeant told the investigator the investigator recorded that in his report um, That's it's not admissible so uh, the federal court agreed with the state court that his presence at the June 18th conference was due to his disruptive behavior and that the conference was not a critical one in his defense and therefore he was not they didn't he didn't require his presence was not required mm-hmm. and the June 28th conference um again it was on a collateral issue of the admissibility of the report or the statements of the two officers, and therefore his presence also was not required. But he was not present not because he was barred by the court but because he refused to participate, and he would ordered Jackson not to participate, but Jackson ignored that and did participate. So, and then he raised allegations regarding improper summation by the prosecutor, uh, but again, the state court's determination looking at the summation in context as a whole, um, the complaint of passages were, I think in all respects, actually his the prosecutor's rebuttal to the defense. Closing argument. So the prosecutor has a little bit more leeway on closing rebuttal to respond to the defense closing argument. Mm-hmm. And nothing the prosecutor said was improper or prejudicial or even meant what Abu Jamal's counsel seemed to think that it did. And then uh the next claim, so again, that one that claim was you know not unreasonable
0: <laughs> right. uh,
1: he raised ineffective assistance of appellate counsel again, not unreasonable the basically the evidence that he claimed supported or the allegations he made in support of those claims were refuted by the record. And so the state court's resolution, again, not unreasonable. And then he argued that uh, there were racially discriminative peremptory challenges used by the prosecutor to exclude blacks from the jury. And mm-hmm. part of this was based on a tape made by a prosecutor by the name of McMahon… In 1987, talking to prosecutors about how you don't want too many black people on your juries.
2: Oh, dear Lord.
1: And this is why. Um, The federal court, as with the state courts, they found the McMahon tape was not material – because it wasn't made for five until five years after Abu Jamal's trial, and Mr. McGill did not make it. So McMahon's opinions or strategy is not necessarily Mr. McGill's strategy. And then they also wanted to admit a study conducted by... Uh, gentleman at the University of Iowa regarding racially uh, discriminative preemptory challenges in Philadelphia but again the study didn't cover the 1982 period it covered 1983 to 1993 right um now, I've seen – I've read on on different articles that there was a second study done earlier that did cover 1982, but I have not been able to find that study. The only one I can find is a 1983 to 1993 study. I did find a study that was not published until – 2001 that talked more in depth about Philadelphia and Joseph McGill, but that's not the one that they claim was in existence in 1995 at the PCRA hearings Uh or 1998, 1997. So, um, you know, again, that doesn't cover Abu Jamal. And then I found another another study that was done that mentions the Abu Jamal case in a footnote, but doesn't talk about McGill or peremptory challenges or Batson or anything of that nature. Now, there was also an earlier study published in 1986, which is when they claim this study was published, but it was about Georgia. Uh And it was a survey of cases in Georgia, not Philadelphia. So I think somebody's conflating two different reports. And um, Hmm. none of the articles that complain about this and criticize the federal court judge for not taking these studies into consideration, although if they're not part of the – trial or appellate records from state court, he can't consider them. Right. And if they're being offered as a basis to get an evidentiary hearing on the issue, he can't consider them, and he can't have an evidentiary hearing if they don't conform to... Basically showing why an evidentiary hearing is needed right um, so that was that was also rejected, and then um he complained about the court's communication with and removal of juror Dolly. Of course, we recall uh juror Dolly the first day of sequestration, asked a court officer if she could go home and take a sick cat to the vet. The court officer laid the request to the judge, who said no, and then he relayed that to juror Dolly. Dolly then snuck out of her room and went home and took her cat to the vet and came back. Okay. Okay. Um, They also complained because apparently another juror had to attend a closing or had a civil service exam. Uh, The record says that the juror had to attend a settlement, so they were going to break at 3.30 so that he could be escorted to the settlement and brought back. And that was on the second or third day of trial. Um but there's a chunk of the j ju- voisier transcripts missing. And I'm not sure if he's a juror that when he was at Voidir he said, Oh, by the way, I have to do this on this date.
2: Right.
1: It's already prearranged. I can't serve on the jury if I can't do this, and so the court made arrangements Um, because it was was ahead of time. They could plan for it. They could designate somebody to go with them, make sure he wasn't exposed to any publicity, media, nobody talking about the case, whatever. With Dolly, it came up at the last minute… There wasn't really i mean there wasn't anything to do because the the officers with the jury they needed to stay with the jury. they couldn't be taken one off to go you because know, that would leave them short handed with the jury All right so um they found no no error um. And, again, this was another one where the the circumstances as relayed by Abu Jamal's attorneys and the record were not in agreement.
3: Uh-huh.
1: And then um, they also complained about the court's refusal to excuse an unfit juror for cause. That was uh, the first alternate juror who took Dolly's place. Um, during his questioning by Mr. Jackson, his answers were a little confusing, but so were Jackson's questions. And I read this I read this particular section of the Wadir a couple of times. But once Mr. McGill and the judge questioned him, He understood the questions, and he was able to say, yeah, I can be fair and impartial, and I can make a decision based on the evidence presented at trial. Um, And by then, Abu Jamal had exhausted all of his peremptory challenges. Mm -hmm. So when his challenge for cause was denied, he couldn't get rid of the juror. And um, they found no problem again… You know the court, the state court determination was not unreasonable. Uh, There was also a claim that the three of the jurors engaged in secret and premature deliberations. Um, The witness offered in state court was an attorney by the name of Hawkins whose testimony was a juror told me that three other jurors engaged in premature deliberations. Um, That's called hearsay. Right. Uh, There are some restrictions on when you can call the jurors, when jurors can testify, but if the issue is premature deliberations, you could probably call the jurors just to say, did you engage in any deliberation prior to the end of closing arguments and the final jury charges? And that's a yes or no. Right. Um, and I don't, from the from the opinions, both state court and federal court, I get the impression that Hawkins may not have been able to identify the juror who provided him with this information or the three jurors who allegedly engaged in premature deliberation. And so that doesn't help his credibility on that issue. So kind of as with the uh, discrimination, the peremptory challenge, uh, racial discrimination on peremptory challenge claims uh, basically the finding is that the record was not adequately developed in state court due to Jamal's fa- uh, excuse me failure to call witnesses to develop those claims as far as the peremptory challenges he subpoenaed McGill but he didn't call him
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, I mean that you know that would have, of course, what would have probably happened is Mr. McGill would have been able to provide non-biased reasons for excluding certain of these jurors. Um, as I said, when I reviewed the Voidier transcript, um, several of them said, "I don't believe in the death penalty," or "I cannot send someone to death."
0: really. And
1: when Mr. McGill made a challenge for cause, Mr. Jackson talked to the wit talked to the juror veneer members and said, Well, are there certain cases that are bad enough that you could do it? And the jurors were like, Oh yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, I could do that. That doesn't cut it. And so then when he challenges McGill uses a peremptory To get them off the jury, um, but again, right. their their statement initially was, "I don't believe in the death penalty, or I cannot send someone to death." So, um, and then he made allegations regarding the composition of the jury pool, but again, the state court record was not sufficiently developed. Um, you know, they didn't. He didn't provide any information, statistical information regarding the racial composition of the pool as a whole. He didn't develop a record in state court as to how many jurors or how many, you know, what the races were of each of the jurors that Mr. McGill excluded races of the jurors he excluded wasn't necessarily disclosed or developed. Um, So in order to come to a To prevent a a prima facie case of discrimination, you have to have those statistics in order to support that. And under the law that existed at the time of his trial, there was no objection made consistent with that law by Jackson or Jamal during Dwadir regarding the use of peremptory challenges. And the dismissal of jurors. So the record of the state court record is just not developed, and that is on Abu Jamal. Mm -hmm. And then finally we get to the only successful claim, and that was deficiency of the jury form and jury charge. Uh, Basically at that time – He had one, and it was a big one. (laughs) Yeah,
2: I was about to say, that's the one you
1: want to win. Basically, the jury form and the jury charge, uh, and and this was in Pennsylvania, death penalty cases, uh, probably a number of them. Um, They did not adequately advise jurors regarding... The fact that while you have to find an aggravating circumstance unanimously, you do not have to find mitigating circumstances unanimously. Uh Um, You can have 12 jurors and they can have some mitigating circumstances that they all agree upon, and then they may have additional circumstances that they believe mitigate, but... A fellow juror may not, and um, the instructions as they existed could have led to a misunderstanding and belief that if all 12 did not agree on a mitigating circumstance, then they couldn't consider it. I don't necessarily find that to be true in this case. Because they did find his lack of a criminal record as a mitigating circumstance, uh-huh. I would expect that if there was confusion, they would have found no mitigation right at all. Um, but under federal law and supreme Court precedent. At the time, uh, the claim was, did have merit, and Abu Jamal was granted relief on that claim, and his sentence was vacated. And then finally, he, uh, he alleged denial of due process and unfair post-conviction hearings, which included claims of bias of Judge Sabo and Judge Castile. Um, the court actually, I think, did not even really consider the remaining issues. Once he found one with merit, he was done. Right. So um, uh, so that was pretty much the – like I said, the, the conviction and the guilt phase of Abu Jamal's trial were found to pass. Constitutional muster, but the sentencing was not. And right. uh, Judge Young ordered that I think the state had 180 days to either resentence him or commute the oh. sentence to life in prison oh. without the possibility of parole. Uh, both the Commonwealth and Abu Jamal appealed to the Third Circuit Court of Appeal. Only four issues—five, well, no, four issues—were were deemed to be worthy of a uh, certificate of appealability by the Third Circuit, and that was Abu Jamal's Batson claim, the allegations regarding prosecutor summation the allegations regarding post-conviction procedures and the deficient jury charge and jury form. Um, They found, they basically affirmed the habeas court on the Batson summation and post-conviction claims. Um, They found the record as to the Batson claim not sufficiently developed and that Abu Jamal had not made a prima facie case of discrimination during jury selection. Uh, and they also affirmed the, the summation and the post-conviction claims. And then they affirmed Formal. the deficient jury charge and jury form uh, because Abu Jamal was appealing the denial of a new trial on the conviction sentencing issues as well as the sentencing I mean, the conviction issues, guilt phase issues. Um, Abu Jamal moved for rehearing on Bonk by the Third Circuit, which was denied. He then filed a writ along with the Commonwealth to the U.S. Supreme Court. Abu Jamal's writ to the Supreme Court was denied, but the Commonwealth's writ was granted, and the claim was remanded to the Third Circuit to consider intervening authority in a case called Smith versus Spesak, which is a 2010 U.S. Supreme Court case dealing with the jury form, jury charge issue. And in 2011, after uh, rehearing the uh, Third Circuit Court of Appeal, affirm the USDC on the jury form and jury charge issue. So Abu Jamal's sentence was vacated. Um, The Commonwealth appealed to the – took a writ with the U.S. Supreme Court, which did not grant the writ. And so in 2012, after discussion with – or 2011 – After discussion with um, Maureen Faulkner, the district attorney at the time, a gentleman by the name of Seth Williams, agreed not to pursue a new sentencing hearing. Right. And in 2012, Jamal was resentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Jamal appealed that, but the Court of Appeal, kind of interestingly, he had filed multiple motions with the Court of Appeal, um, and I, I guess basically he pro- filed them pro se so they don't make a lot of sense. But in his appeal of the resentencing, the appellate court said we, the trial court did what you wanted it to do. The trial court did what you were trying to compel us to make the trial court do. We don't understand what your problem is. Right. And that was the end of it. So, um, so that that he was not resentenced, uh, and it was you know it was a good decision. If he had been resentenced, it would have reopened direct appeal, PCRA. Federal habeas. So even had he gotten a death sentence, he was—he's what, sixty-five years old now.
2: Right. He probably wouldn't have. Done. He would
1: not. He would not have been executed anytime right. soon. Um, So, uh, and Maureen Faulkner did agree. With that outcome she was not happy. I don't blame her, but it it would it prevents additional thirty something years of appeals. All
0: right.
1: So um that was the end of it. And um now we have the myth, And uh-huh. Uh, these are the myths that are, are basically in the media, in advocacy pieces, but have never been presented to the courts or have not been found to have any merit by the courts.
3: Right.
1: Um. The first one is that the bullet that killed Officer Faulkner was 44 caliber, which could not have been fired from Abu Jamal's 38 caliber gun. Uh, This claim is based on a note made by the medical examiner when he removed the bullet from from Officer Faulkner. He measured it. He said it. To him, it measured 10 millimeters, so he guessed it was a 44. He's not a ballistics expert. He did not compare test fire bullets from Abu Jamal's gun with the fragment he recovered, or anything to substantiate that opinion about a 44 caliber or the caliber of the bullet at at, at all. Uh, interestingly, he testified at I think a PCRA hearing that that note should have been destroyed because it was never meant to become part of the record. And the claim about the 44-bullet, they claim the 44-bullet reference is in the autopsy report, but that's not true.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: It was in a note that was probably received in a Freedom of Information Act request to the medical examiner's office years after the trial. Um, And then there's a a claim about several eyewitnesses seeing someone other than Abu Jamal shooting Officer Faulkner and escaping up an alley. Well, we've talked about some of those eyewitnesses like Desi Hightower, Veronica Jones, um, Deborah Kradansky, William Singletary, and None of them were found to be credible by the state courts, and I'm sure when they are presenting their, their claims, if the Pennsylvania Supreme Court agrees to hear the claims or re-hear re the appeals of the PCRA claims, that they will try to present additional witnesses or try to reopen the proceedings to present more witnesses who come forward and say, I saw somebody else shoot Officer Faulkner. Um, the uh, Another claim is that the jury was racially stacked against Abu Jamal by the prosecutor who used 11 of his peremptory challenges to exclude qualified black jurors solely based on their race. Again, this is an issue that Abu Jamal has not developed in the trial courts, in the PCRA court, and was unsuccessful attempting to develop a record at the federal habeas court. Right. Um, there is, in the voir dire records, there's not a lot of information about the race of jurors. There's no information about the race of the entire panel. Um and the claim, the claims about how many peremptory challenges were used against black, it, it seems to change. It was eight, and then it was 10, and now it's 11, and pretty soon it will be all 15. And, um, you know, that's one of the problems with advocacy pieces, getting your information from advocacy pieces rather than trial records. Right. Because in the trial record, it's unclear exactly how many. The okay. trial records, the the state Supreme Court, the state PCRA court, and the federal court say it's between 8 and 10. And he only used 15. He had five oh. peremptory challenges left. So... um then uh, that Mami Abu-Jamal is a political prisoner who was convicted and sentenced to death because of political beliefs and his past membership in the Black Panthers. This is partially true because it is his political beliefs and his past membership in the Black Panthers that led to him executing a police officer on the streets of Philadelphia on December 9, 1981. right that the state of Pennsylvania would try him for that crime is perfectly reasonable and anyone who believes it's not reasonable is deluded
2: absolutely
1: um but his trial he's he's had every benefit at trial and post conviction he certainly had more benefits than he gave Daniel Faulkner because his case, he's appealed to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court three times, and he's fixed an appeal a fourth time. So... um you know he's he's convicted in sense of death because he executed a police officer on December ninth, uh-huh. nineteen eighty one. Um, the court allocated just one hundred and fifty dollars for Mamiya Abu and his Abu Jamal and his attorney to mount their entire defense. That's just un, totally untrue. Absolutely, totally untrue. Um, the preliminary. Allocation was $150 per expert in 1981. I don't know what that would be in 2019 dollars, but I suspect it would be probably more than $150. Um, And then, as with any state indigent defense, if Anthony Jackson went to the judge and presented bills for work performed by his experts who generated reports, the court would have paid those bills. There was nothing stopping them from getting additional money. Also, a fact that Abu Jamal's advocates don't mention is that he had at least two groups raising money for his defense. Right. and one of those groups actually paid an investigator 500 and something dollars for work he performed mm-hmm. in addition to what the investigator had been paid by the court and Jackson was able to get an increase on his ballistics expert from 150 to 350
2: just buy it. so
1: that is just that is just patently false um,
0: right.
1: There's no two ways about it. And anybody, anybody who reads the court records and reads the opinions and reads the hearing transcripts would know that that's patently false. Um, then the, the next claim is that the Philadelphia Police Department lost evidence, withheld evidence, coerced witnesses, and conspired against Mr. Jamal to obtain eviction. Uh, Abu Jamal hasn't proven that any evidence was lost. There's an allegation that bullet fragments were lost, but he hasn't proven it. He hasn't presented anything that supports that claim other than, well, the, if the medical examiner said the bullet was a 44, there there's got to be fragments missing. That's called speculation.
0: Uh-huh. Uh,
1: they withheld evidence. Again, it doesn't really identify what evidence did they withhold. It's one of those blanket claims that what evidence was withheld, that they didn't do a sniff test on a gun at the crime scene to prove that it had been fired. I promise you, if one of the officers had sniffed that gun – and then come into court to testify that he sniffed it and it had been recently fired, he would be oh, branded Lord. a liar.
2: Yeah,
0: absolutely. It would have been if they'd done happened.
1: gunshot residue or paraffin tests on Daniel Faulkner's hands, Bujamal Abu-Jamal's hands, hands, Anthony Jackson would have had somebody in there to talk about, testify about the studies done in 1963 prior to John Kennedy's assassination that said
0: Uh
1: in the field or well, that said, even in controlled laboratory type conditions, there are false positives and false negatives with gunshot residue testing of hands. Uh Some weapons, you don't get any gunshot residue on your hand. You know, Some weapons, you get a lot. They had people who were near a gun that was fired that had residue on their hands, even though they didn't handle the gun. So, you know, again, that would have been challenged at trial had it been done, Uh, that they coerced witnesses. Well, there's allegations by Veronica Jones that they coerced her, but she didn't actually – Providing culpatory testimony at Abu Jamal's trial, she actually tried to help him at his trial and later at his PCRA hearing, and she came out with some crazy stories about having some kind of relationship with Daniel Faulkner. So, and her sister wrote a book about her. So, I think that Miss Jones just liked the attention. William Singletary wasn't credible. Desi Hightower wasn't credible. You know, most of these witnesses, they presented their their claims. Arnold Howard, not credible. And the conspiring against Mr. Jamal, again, none of the officers who responded to Daniel Faulkner's murder scene knew who Abu Jamal was with the exception of perhaps Al Giordano because he was an inspect, inspector and he had been involved in conflicts with MOVE right. um, but again you know how can they conspire against him when they don't know who he was at that time he was a taxi driver he wasn't on the radio he wasn't writing articles he was a taxi driver. It
0: was
1: <laughs> Pretty much. And that probably was, was, a that was a stressor for him. Mhm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Mr. Jamal was coming to the aid of his brother who was being brutally beaten by Officer Faulkner. Uh, well, unfortunately, there's no evidentiary support for this claim because neither Abu Jamal or his brother – has ever testified under oath, subject to cross examination, in any court proceeding about what happened on December 9, 1981. In 1982, William Cook said it had been decided he wasn't going to testify. Abu Jamal has mm-hmm. complained in some of his appellate claims that he didn't testify because he didn't like anything the court was doing. So he wasn't gonna give legitimacy to those proceedings by testifying. And as recently as twenty two thousand six, seven, eight, somewhere in there, uh his attorney on the federal habeas appeal to the Third Circuit, Robert Bryan, said he will testify at any new trial. Mhm. So without – what the eyewitnesses saw, and Mr. Jamal can disagree with them all he wants, but he's never proven that any of them were coerced, that any of them have made false statements. The jurors were aware of the inconsistencies with descriptions and heights and weights and positions and things like that because Anthony Jackson thoroughly cross-examined all four eyewitnesses. At trial, and the jury found their testimony to be credible, and absent testimony from William Cook or Wesley Cook, all we have are those eyewitnesses, and those eyewitnesses did not see a brutal beating by Officer Faulkner. They saw Officer Faulkner struck in the face by Billy Cook, and Billy Cook was convicted of assault on Officer Faulkner on December 9th. 1981. So those are the facts that are of record in the courts. Right. Um, Mr. Mumia Abu Jamal was denied his right of self right to self representation in violation of his constitutional rights. Uh, once again, this demonstrates kind of the all or nothing attitude. Um, He was – his right to self-representation was taken away due to his disruptive behavior in court, his disrespect to the judge, his arguing with the judge, his cursing at the judge, his two days of tirades and tantrums on the first two days of his murder trial. Um that is why he was not allowed to continue representing himself. Right. And was, every court that has examined was. that claim has found that Judge Sabo followed the law to a T.
2: I don't mean to get off on a tangent here real quick, but this just made me think about this, the guy complaining about not defending himself and shit. Did he ever have a psyche eval done on him? I'm sure he did. And I'm sure we went over it, but I'm drawing a blank. Well,
1: it's not public record. After the sentencing hearing, I believe Judge Sabo did order some sort of uh, psychological evaluation. Mm -hmm. And I found a reference that it did find that he was kind of indirectly suicidal right but it, it's not really public record
2: right and, yeah,
1: and all that. so i i don't know what the findings were but right. again he was following john africa and john africa and move it's all or nothing they're right they're always right Anybody who disagrees with them is wrong. They have rights. No one else does. And basically, it's my way or the highway. That's how right. they think. And they think they can impose that upon the world. And um, so that that is why he was the way he was. Um, it You know, that strategy at trial did not – work for the Move 9. Uh, it, I think John Africa and his co-defendant were acquitted in federal court probably because they actually didn't conduct themselves in the way Abu Jamal did. Mm-hmm. And they were dealing with a weapons conspiracy charge rather than a murder charge. Um, so, and like I said, every court that's examined the issue has found Judge Sabo followed the law. And a couple, of, I think the, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court at one point said um, he was amazingly patient and tolerant. And, you know, he didn't warn him once and then throw him out of court. He warned him multiple times before finally saying, okay, third strike, you're out. Right. So, um, yeah, and then uh, number ten is that uh, Mumia Abu Jamal Jamal's court-appointed attorney was admittedly incompetent and capable of mounting a defense on Jamal's behalf. Well, Anthony Jackson was not incompetent. uh, Was not inexperienced. He had tried twenty murder cases. And only lost six, and Abu-Jamal was the only defendant that he represented who was actually sentenced to death. Hmm. Um, and I, like I, I think I said this, I think that if Abu-Jamal had let Anthony Jackson do his job, he might have gotten a lesser charge. <clears throat> if not a manslaughter, then it you know a second degree murder um, because you know shooting officer Faulkner in the back really doesn't doesn't bode well for self defense or defense of another um, yeah, absolutely. and then shooting the fourth and then shooting him you know shooting at him four times once in the- once in the face, hitting him once in the face. … doesn't bode well for self-defense because you shoot him in the back and he's down, you stop shooting. Um, judge Albert Sabo, uh, number 11, Judge Albert Sabo, has sentenced more black people to death than any other judge in the U.S. Therefore, he had a bias against me, Abu Jamal. Well, Judge Sabo at the time of Abu Jamal's trial had been a judge in the Court of Common Pleas in Philadelphia… Since 1973, he had been in the uh, homicide unit, and the majority of the cases that he tried were first-degree murders in Philadelphia during a particularly high-crime, high-murder-rate period. Mm-hmm. Um, therefore, the statistics and, and the support for the statistics – is a study done by criminal defense attorneys and published in the Philadelphia Inquirer, as I recall. So, you know, take that as you will. Um, Right. As far as a bias against the Abu Jamal, you know, everything in the transcripts that I read with both Judge Sabo and Judge McGill – They were looking out for Mamiya Abu-Jamal's rights more than Mumia Abu-Jamal was actually doing because they were each trying to minimize the impact of Abu-Jamal's tirades before the jury. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And there were a couple of instances where Abu-Jamal accepted jurors and – Mr. McGill challenged him for cause because one of them had a son who was a police officer who was shot and another one was I think the wife of a police officer or had friends who or, you know multiple family members who were police officers so right. Um, but, again, I think, you know, part of Abu Jamal's strategy was creating error. So um, myth number 12 is that the ballistics evidence used to convict Abu Jamal was flawed. The police failed to test Jamal's hands to see if he recently fired a gun, and they never sniffed Jamal's gun to see if it had been fired. Well, we've talked about that. Um, the circumstances for testing hands on the field – leave a lot to be desired, and just the few minutes after the shooting happened made it questionable as to whether any gunshot residue would be found. Also, finding gunshot residue or not finding it isn't necessarily dispositive. Um, Without gunshot residue on his hands, the fact that he owned the gun And the fact that all five cartridges in the gun were empty is sufficient to infer that the gun had been fired. And if you're carrying a gun around for protection, you do not carry an unloaded weapon or a weapon with five spent casings. What are you going to do with that gun? Throw it at them?
0: Right,
1: exactly. And uh, again, the sniff test is not, it is not a scientific test. It's not reproducible. And it's base, if, if a guy sniffs it and has a cold or sinuses <laughs> are stopped up, he might not smell anything. Or he might, right. what he smells may be very faint. The next guy that sniffs it might smell it very strongly. Because he has a more attuned sense of smell, a pregnant right. woman would probably smell it from five feet away. Right. You know, <laughs> there there's no controlled condition or ability to reproduce a result that is required for scientific testing. Um, and again, it's not necessarily to do it when the gun's right next to him; he's at the scene. And there are five spent shell casings and an officer with two bullets dead on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, then myth number 13, only one prosecution witness saw Mr. Jamal with a gun. Well, that's true. Only one of the prosecution witnesses saw him with a gun. The other witnesses, mm-hmm. none of them could see a gun in his hand. They inferred. That there was shooting going on either based on Abu Jamal's position or based on the sound of shots. Um, but one would think if the prosecution or the police are just trying to frame good old Mumia, why wouldn't all of the witnesses see him with a gun? Sure. And why wouldn't all of the witnesses agree on exactly how tall? What he weighed, what he was wearing, who was there, who wasn't there—you know—if the police were framing him, why would there be so much inconsistency among the various statements of the witnesses? (laughs) And but really, you you can't—you know—unless
2: that's what you want them to think.
1: No, it's just crazy. It's one of those situations where it's like, you know, arguing with the judge for 25 minutes and then saying you're not disrupting the trial. Right. You know, it, it's if it doesn't make sense, it's probably not true. Um, that one is true, but it's not, again, it's not dispositive as to guilt or innocence. And one would expect if the police were... Give, telling witnesses what they needed to say, they would agree statement. on the facts,
0: Right, and There's it's funny women.
1: too. Another uh, another allegation made often in various criminal cases, they'll take – for example, they'll take Cynthia White's statement and try to prove that something in her statement proves that Schobert's lying or uh-huh. Scanlon's lying, and it's like, no, you have to look at their statement. Yeah, Robert Schobert didn't see Cynthia White. Cynthia White didn't see him. Cynthia – these other witnesses – all these witnesses didn't know one another, and they talked to four different police officers within half an hour, 45 minutes of the shooting, and they gave their statements. And Robert Schobert identified Abu Jamal at the scene in the wagon. So – um, Mumi Abu-Jamal is an award-win- award-winning journalist. Um, he did win some journalism award. It wasn't a Peabody. I don't remember the name of it. Um, it's portrayed as being impressive, and I won't argue that it isn't. Um, and then he had been named as, as one of Philadelphia's, like, 81 to watch in 81, after he'd been fired from the radio, so I think that that article probably went to press prior to his firing from the radio, and it was written at the time he was still an up-and-coming, you know, radio journalist. Um, then myth number fifteen: uh, the real killer's driver's license was found and officer fought in Officer Faulkner's pocket the morning he was murdered. Um, That also is absolutely untrue. The temporary license or license application, and there's kind of dispute as to which it was, um, led to a man by the name of Arnold Howard who said, I lost that in Billy Cook's car on November 30th, I believe, 1981. That's the last time I saw it. He gave me a ride home. Uh, Mr. Howard also provided a receipt that made it impossible for him to have been at the crime scene. So that is untrue because the person the license belonged to was not at the crime scene and hadn't seen the license since he lost the right. car. Um, and also, interestingly enough, it's possible – That addition to being kind of belligerent, Billy Cook handed this temporary license to to Officer Faulkner, who knew Billy Cook and knew he wasn't Arnold Howard, or maybe he knew Arnold Howard and knew Billy Cook wasn't Arnold Howard. And that might have been what led to the altercation where Billy Cook hit him or where he decided to take Billy Cook into custody. Uh, We don't know because, unfortunately – Daniel Faulkner is not here to tell us what happened, and Billy Cook and Wesley Cook are not testifying under oath subject cross examination. Right. Um, the downward the downward angle of Jamal's wound makes the prosecution's explanation explanation of the shooting impossible. Um, Jamal's expert who testified regarding the angle of the wound and the position relative positions … at the time of the shooting, he basically was not given reports or witness statements or anything to review independently. He formed his opinion based on what the defense attorneys told him happened. Right. Um, I, I, don't know, I, I don't know that it's even clear that the wound Jamal sustained was downward. Um, But at any rate, it's not necessarily true. The opinion that it's based on was based on insufficient evidence and based on biased information provided by defense attorneys, not an independent evaluation of reports, witness statements, autopsy reports, medical reports, medical records from Abu Jamal. Um, Right. And it was given by a, uh, a gentleman who was not a licensed physician in 1982 and therefore could not have given that testimony at trial. Um, then the Arnold Beverly story, it, it's, it's not even worthy of belief. There was a big dust-up between Wineglass and Williams, and Rachel Wolkerstein over that because Wolkerstein, Wolkerstein wanted to present that to court, and Wineglass and Williams could smell the bullshit and yeah. did not want to present it. I wish they had presented that in the PCRA court. I really do. I wish they had, pre- and, and you know, interestingly enough, as much as they believe the Arnold Beverly story, As far as the reports are going, as far as the advocacy claims on media articles and things like that, they didn't present it in the federal habeas claim.
0: Okay.
1: So (laughs) methinks that they don't really believe it, although the attorney who represented Abu Jamal on the federal habeas claim at the district court talked about it in a, in a talk he gave during a fundraising event for Abu Jamal. Um, so, you know, that, that's... The Arnold Beverly story is one that is designed for the media and to give the appearance of innocence because they're saying the real killer confessed, although Arnold Beverly doesn't actually confess to shooting... Daniel Faulkner. He claims his partner shot Daniel Faulkner. Right. Um, And unfortunately, Arnold Beverly waited until 1999 to come forward, which was 18 years too late. And nothing he said can be corroborated. He doesn't identify who the second man with him was. Um, He doesn't identify who hired him, although he claims it was, you know, he was given police protection. also, interestingly, he says he was carrying a thirty eight as well as his own twenty
0: mm Mm-hmm.
1: Even though the one of the claims is that the gun was a forty four, not a thirty eight.
0: Hmm.
1: So this is one of those situations, like Judge Judy says, if it doesn't make sense, it probably isn't true. All right. Um. And then the temporary license license application led to Kenneth Freeman. That's an absolute lie. Um, J. Patrick O'Connor is, is one person who is uh, promulgating this lie based on the PCRA testimony of Arnold Howard, who is not, who is not deemed to be credible at the PCRA hearing. And um, who actually in 1981 gave a statement that didn't say anything at all about Kenneth Freeman. <clears throat> so um, that's, a, that's an absolute lie. The application, license, whatever it was, led to Arnold Howard in 1981. He was questioned. He said he lost it in Billy Cook's car the last time he saw it. And he proved he couldn't have been at the crime scene uh- uh-huh. um so and and to say that in nineteen eighty one the police knew it was Kenneth Freeman, who was partners with Billy Cook is again a lie because in nineteen eighty one Arnold Howard said nothing about Kenneth Freeman, and in fact, in his p c r a testimony, he doesn't say anything about telling police that it was he gave it to Kenneth Freeman. He says he gave it to Kenneth Freeman in his testimony, and that he saw Freeman at the police station, and both of them were put in a lineup, and some black girl picked Kenneth Freeman. That's where Mm -hmm. J. Patrick O'Connor gets this claim. And like I said, it's based on an absolute lie told by Arnold Howard in an effort to exonerate Abu Jamal. Um, Then. The claim uh, there's a claim there are some photographs that were taken by a guy by the name of Pedro Polakoff, and those photographs exonerate Abu Jamal. One of the claims that it's a, multiple photographs, um, Polakoff was some kind of freelance photographer. He heard about the shooting on a police ca- scanner, he went to the scene. Uh, The claim is that he got there within 15 minutes of the shooting, and that to his surprise, uh, there was no cordoning off of the crime scene, no protection of the crime scene, and nobody keeping him out of the crime scene. So he got his little camera out, and he started snapping pictures. Well, he got a picture of Officer Forbes holding – Officer Faulkner's weapon and Abu Jamal's weapon in one hand, and that supposedly proves all the whole ballistics case. But unfortunately for Abu Jamal and Mr. Polikoff, in the motion to suppress hearing, Officer Forbes testified that he held both guns by the grips in one hand as he and shoemaker were, were securing the scene. So kind of screws up that whole blockbuster evidence because officer shoemaker uh, officer Forbes testified about it in 1982. Right. So that picture is no blockbuster. Um, There's another picture of the concrete where Officer Faulkner was shot and fell. And the claim is is that there are no pockmarks in the concrete caused by bullets. Interestingly, in order to prove this claim about that photograph, um, Dave Lindorf, who's a journalist in Philadelphia, and Lynn Washington, I believe, set up an experiment they put a concrete slab and they put a wooden frame around it and then as they fired down into the concrete they braced themselves on the frame which means that their hand is not going to move the gun is not going to come up or tip up or anything like that in the act of firing as it would if you're firing down at somebody with no frame on which to brace yourself. Right. And there are all kinds of reasons why there aren't any pop marks. There may not be any pop marks visible, but they were there. Um, the, The picture is poor lighting. The pictures are not well lit. You know, I can't tell whether there are or aren't pockmarks. Yeah, it looks clear but poor lighting and everything, it it could be that you just can't see pockmarks because of the lighting. Um and there's also a chance there was a grate nearby where uh-huh. if the gun, if the barrel came up a little bit, the bullet might go into the grate or ricochet off the the, you know, slats in the grate and go somewhere else. Um well, we're probably lucky. Some of the eyewitnesses at the scene didn't end up getting shot themselves. True. But uh, then um, there's one other picture that doesn't show uh, Schobert's taxi. But if he got there 15 minutes later, and Schobert had been taken to the police station, you know his taxi would have gone with him. And he, his taxi would not be parked behind Officer Faulkner's car. Um, Mr. Polakoff has appeared in some documentaries about the case, but he's never given any kind of uh, declaration or affidavits or testimony about the photographs and what time he arrived, how long he was there, et cetera, et cetera. So the provenance of those photographs are still kind of questionable. Um, it is too late to raise the issue because Abu Jamal and his advocates have had the photographs since about 2006. Mm-hmm. So uh, even if he were to go try to go to state court and raise this issue, it would be too late. Because it's been more than a year since he knew of the photographs. Um, and then, you know, finally, there's a, there's a funny story or a funny claim. Um, Polakoff apparently went to the prosecutor and tried to sell him the photographs that he took that morning. Right. And the prosecutor wasn't interested. So there's a sort of an argument that there's some kind of Brady claim that the prosecutor knew Polakoff had all these photographs. And didn't inform Abu Jamal's counsel. But I find that to be kind of nonsensical because police and prosecutors are not going to necessarily use photographs from a person who tries to sell the photographs to them. Right. If you have photographs and you think they're relevant and you want to give them to the police or the prosecutors, that's okay. That's good. It's probably helpful in some cases. And that's another thing I want to talk to uh Commander Gernon about. Guerin about is you know, it, would you buy photographs? <laughs> hmm. Um and, and Polakoff apparently was never able to sell him to any any publication, and so he sat on him for 25 years, uh-huh. and then suddenly realized Abu Jamal wasn't as guilty as he thought he was, and so he gave him to Abu, Abu Jamal's advocates. Um, and then uh, the next one is that the state and federal courts have consistently ignored precedent to rule against Abu Jamal. Well, anybody who actually reads the state and federal court opinions would know that that is not the case because where they go against precedent, they explain why they're going against precedent. One of the examples that's used is uh, an improper argument made by uh, Prosecutor McGill in another case.  … that resulted in a death sentence being vacated and the person being sentenced, resentenced to life in prison. But the state Supreme Court examined that closing argument as well as the closing argument in Abu Jamal's case and found in the first closing argument, yeah, he made improper statements. They weren't a commentary on the evidence. They weren't in response to the defense summation, and therefore… He violated that defendant's, you know, rights and due process. But in Abu Jamal in Abu Jamal's case, the complained of statements were made entirely in the response to Anthony Jackson's summation. And I think that's another thing; it's an all or nothing thing for them. If one case has this result then Abu Jamal's case should have the same result, and that's not how it works. If the cases are identical facts and identical law, yes, the result will be the same. But if you can distinguish the prior case or facts from the prior case, then no, the results are not going to be the same. Oh, yeah. Um so you know again and and I know I've read Patrick O'Connor's book on Kevin Cooper and I'm reading the the book on uh, Abu Jamal and I've watched several videos and you know O'Connor talks about a lot of things this happened this way and this happened that way but none of it is from his own first hand knowledge and he claims to have reviewed trial testimony and uh police reports and things like that, but then he makes statements about facts that are refuted by trial testimony, appellate opinions and things like that. So, again, it's designed to give the appearance of innocence to the general public and to incite disrespect toward the courts for not doing what these journalists and the general public believe should have been done. And
0: uh-huh. we see
1: that often in these innocence cases in the media and documentaries and things of that nature. And that's something we're going to talk about with the Court of Public Opinion in a couple of weeks uh, when, we, when we talk to the panel of people. From the true crime Perfect. and uh, Roberta Glass discussion groups on Facebook. And okay. then finally, myth number 21 is uh, 15 of the 35 officers who collected evidence of the crime scene were later indicted for corruption, extortion, and tampering with evidence. Um, this is another overly inflated claim meant to make it sound like something was fishy in Philadelphia. On December 9, 1981, but um, I can only corroborate a single police person, police – he was an inspector, Al Giordano, who was charged, pled guilty, and lost his job as a result of extortion, corruption, charge. Charges, and that was Alfonso Giordano. I have searched the names of every officer who collected evidence at the crime scene or rendered opinions about the case on behalf of the Commonwealth, and none of those people were associated in any way, shape, or form with any prosecutions for corruption, extortion manufacturing evidence or tampering with evidence. There were not 35 officers collecting evidence. Mm -hmm. Um, There were probably 35 officers involved among taking witness statements, especially in the first days after. Um, There were officers involved in apprehending and uh, taking Abu Jamal to the hospital and things of that nature. But again, 15 of them were not charged as Abu Jamal's advocates, particularly Joanna Fernandez claim and Patrick O'Connor claim. Right. Um, Al Giordano was the only one. He was not the head of the investigation. He did not play a major role in the investigation. He had one contact with Abu Jamal in the wagon where Abu Jamal made an admission to him he testified about that at the preliminary hearing and after that point he did not testify at the trial Um, I believe Uh the reason he didn't testify at the trial was not that he was under investigation at the time but that there was a A question as to whether or not the statement against – could be used against Abu Jamal because he hadn't been Mirandized at the time it was made. Right. So more likely than not, the prosecutor elected not to use it because of the, the issue on the motion to suppress. Although the judge had found that it was a like a spontaneous admission, um, it's still possible that Judge Sabo at trial would say, well, he should have, you know, read him his Miranda rights before he started asking him questions under the circumstances. Um so again, you know, like I said, that's an overly inflated uh claim that gives the appearance of impropriety. When in reality, the only officer – I mean there was widespread corruption, and there were uh, indictments and prosecutions of people on drug task forces in the Center City area. Uh, But that was a totally different squad, and it had nothing to do with Daniel Faulkner's investigation or the investigation of Daniel Faulkner's murder. And none of the officers named in that case had anything to do with Daniel Faulkner's case. Either testimony at trial or peripheral investigations. Um, so again, that's just an overinflated, an overinflated claim.
2: Right. And
1: absolutely untrue.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so because Al Giordano was not the head of the investigation, he was an inspector. As an inspector, when he got the call or when he heard the call over the radio of an officer down, he was required by his job as an inspector to go to the scene.
0: Uh-huh. But
1: once he left the scene that morning, that was the end of his participation, aside from being a witness to a an incriminatory statement. Um, so that that's the end of the myths for now. I'm sure in a year or two I will have found a dozen more not probably <laughs> but this is a this is a lot like this is one of the first cases before Westminster 3 that I was involved in researching um, so it's it's kind of interesting and a lot has happened since the last time I looked at it um, and then there's a book there are a lot of books about the case um the one that I would recommend is Murdered by Mumia, A Life Sentence of Loss, Pain, and Injustice, which was written by Maureen Faulkner with Michael Smirconish, and it was published in 2007. It's a great book, and it really shows the impact of the murder, the trial, and then this post-conviction circus uh, of the 26 years between the murder and the publication of the book. Um, it also talks about her life with Danny
0: mm-hmm. and her
1: love for him and his love for her and her love for his family. Um, and it talks about some of the things, I mean, move has said all kinds of horrible things about her and about Danny over the years. Because to move, you know, they have to denigrate people. And so sure. there's been a, a claim, uh, which it makes me angry because, you know, a victim and their family, you don't need to do that. Unless you're trying to prove that they actually committed the murder. But, you know, to try and, uh, to try and, Minimize the evidence against Abu Jamal by claiming Mr. Fa- Officer Faulkner abused his wife is reprehensible. Hmm. Um, and so, and you know, there were there were a lot of things. She tried at one point. Uh, Maureen Faulkner tried at one point during the trial. You know, she kind of felt for uh, Abu Jamal's mother. And she looked at her and and I think kind of nodded and smiled. She didn't hold it against her mother, the mother of of what her son had done. And the mother starts screaming that the police need to search her. Right. Um, So it's kind of – and it shows a lot of grace and dignity on Maureen Faulkner's part. So it's an excellent book. There are a lot of books. There are a lot more pro-Abu Jamal books than there are anti-Abu Jamal. But um, it's one of the better ones. And then there there are multiple documentaries. Um, I'm going to highlight just a few of them. One was A Case for Reasonable Doubt, which was done by ABC's – I mean, excuse me, was it HBO – Uh, Sheila Nevins production Her of Paradise Lost fame Um, it was broadcast on HBO I believe I saw it I'm ordering it off of Amazon so I'll see it again Mm
3: -hmm.
1: and then there was Hmm. an ABC 2020 episode on December 9, 1998 which looked at the Hollywood support for Abu Jamal and there were interviews with Mr. McGill and uh, Ms. Faulkner and Leonard Wineglass and Ed Asner and I believe Mike Farrell. Um, right. And, you know, of course, typically on the supporter side, Ed Asner says the trial stunk. He doesn't specify how it stunk, what particular error was committed by the court or the prosecution, um, it just stunk. And of course he's, I mean, just rabidly anti-death penalty. And then Mike Farrell, who tries to portray himself as entirely reasonable, he doesn't know if Abu Jamal is guilty or innocent, but he didn't get a fair trial.
2: Oh, absolutely not.
1: Um, so did. it it was kind of it was kind of interesting, but ABC's Twenty Twenty did give a more prosecution oriented look at the case, rather than an innocence narrative, which is what Abu Jamal's supporters want. This led in two thousand five to a film produced by Danny Glover called framing an execution. And basically framing and execution is tearing apart the 2020 story, accusing it of poor journalism, um, poor tactics, uh, badgering Leonard Wineglass. you know, cause at one point during the interview, Sam Donaldson calls wine glass on some of the BS. And of right. course that was out of line. And, uh, it, uh, it claims that it was produced with funds from Maureen Faulkner and the FOP, which is a fraternal order of police. Right. Um, you know, but it had it been a Abu Jamal like Aaron Moriarty's 48 Hours about the Westminster 3 case, uh, there would have been no Fremian execution. And 2020 would have been allotted as fighting for truth, justice, and the American way. Of course, you know, that's not what MOVE wants. You know, they want communism, basically. Um, And then there's another uh, documentary produced in 2007 called Imprisoned My Whole Life. And um, it is basically by some kid who was born in 1982 – who interviews Abu Jamal? I've never, I haven't gotten a chance to see it, but it's kind of the typical innocence narrative, framed by the police, corruption, uh, somebody else was there, you know. It repeats all the goodness, like it's supposed to, and um, so it won't be challenged by Abu Jamal's people. And then there's barrel of a gun, the barrel of a gun by. Tigray Hill, he is a Philadelphia local. Uh, It is an excellent look because it provides a background into Abu Jamal that most of these other documentaries don't don't show. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they show the uh, the the documentaries show the good things the Black Panthers were doing in the community. But not the murders of police officers. And not standing with automatic weapons on the porch with Move. And, you know, cursing up a storm over a bullhorn at the neighborhood because they're ruining the world, according to John Africa. Um, but right. it, it's, it's a really good documentary, and it does look at both sides. It doesn't give the innocence narrative, but it does look at, you know, the support during the Third Circuit hearings for Abu Jamal. Right. Um, And then in response to Tigray Hill, uh, a movie, a documentary called Justice on Trial – the case of Mumia Abu Jamal was produced and released at the same time the barrel of a gun was um, mm-hmm. It is the typical propaganda uh you know Abu Jamal portraying himself as peaceful, doing good things in the community, speaking for those who can't speak for themselves, and you know the License leading to Kenny Freeman and Kenny Freeman was in the car and you know all those right. things, uh, unfair trial and the judge was mean and um and then finally manufacturing guilt was produced in 2013. Um, you can see justice on trials available on Vimeo, which is on internet. Manufacturing Guilt and Framing and Execution are both actually available on YouTube. Okay. As is the 2020 episode. So, um, yeah, when you look at it, and it's kind of typical of the industry of wrongful conviction, so to speak. Um, You have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Films, seven documentaries. I didn't count all the self-serving Mamiya Abu Jamal documentaries about his prison writings and all those things because Mm
0: -hmm.
1: that's you know
0: those are yes I know
1: exactly what to expect and I really don't want to see it. (laughs) But you know two are more balanced because. The interesting thing is that when framing execution or or justice on trial or manufacturing guilt gives the prosecution case, immediately it's torn down.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: They're lying about this. They're lying about that. This isn't true. That, you know, it, it's not. It's not balanced. The barrel of a gun gave a balanced portrayal, both sides, without editorial comment. on okay. either side. And, you know, again, final thoughts. You still there, Michael?
2: Yeah, I'm still here. Can you hear me?
1: I mean, you know, this is this is a pretty simple case. It was solved in 1981. Yeah. Um, the person who shot Daniel Faulkner was shot. And was found at the scene, gun next to him, a few feet from Daniel Faulkner's dead body, on Locust Street, in Philadelphia, Center City. It's, you know, it's that simple. Um, And the case against Abu Jamal, as much as he wants to complain... Anthony Jackson challenged it as best he could, but the evidence was just too overwhelming, and he tried right. to distract as much as he could. Uh, but there was just no – there was no distracting yeah. from the full truth. So, yeah, that's important. Um, I will, I will keep an eye on, on what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court does. Um, okay. They may – again, there's a slim possibility that the judge may have been overstepping his bounds um, in saying that Abu Jamal could re-argue his appeal of his PCRA claims. And really what should have been done was that that claim should have been presented to the Supreme Court to evaluate Castile's bias or lack thereof and
0: uh-huh. determine
1: whether or not it would want to rehear uh Anything, but we'll have to see how they how they rule on it. Um, I downloaded a docket last week and uh, there's no briefing schedule or anything in place right now right, and it'll probably be a few months before anything there's any movement in, of any kind unless on their own motion they decide they're not gonna they're not going get involved.
2: All right.
1: So, but that is the the you know the final thought. It's
0: it's
1: okay. And the saddest part is that Daniel Faulkner and Mumia Abu Jamal, despite the differences in some of their lives, they had a lot of parallels. They were close to the same age. They were from. Not – you know, they were from poor backgrounds, working mothers, uh-huh. single mothers, uh, multiple siblings, and you know large families, and uh, – Right. I, you know, like I said, I, I think as much as he didn't like cops, I think if he met Daniel Faulkner and sat down and talked to him and could be objective – he might have actually come to like Faulkner.
2: Well, and that's the thing, too. I don't think any of these people know how to be objective. Any people like Mr. Abu Jamal who come in with just their mind made up and absolutely refuse yeah. to listen to me, uh, any reason.
1: Exactly. You're correct. You're correct. So, <laughs> all right. Well, we're, we're, Half an hour into our archive time. Yes,
2: we are. This is the (laughs) longest we've
1: gone. The longest we've gone without getting cut off.
2: True, true facts.
1: So, all right, everybody. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us next week on Monday, May 13, 2019 for an interview with Terry Hobbs and Vicki Edwards, co-authors of A Box Full of Nightmares, which chronicles the aftermath of the murders of Steve Branch, Michael Moore, and Chris Byers on Hobbs' life and marriage. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.